0: Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I'm your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we are going to begin our two-part conversation with an incredibly talented marketing and advertising professional who is here to chat with us about the importance of human capital challenges and considerations in today's business world. It is my pleasure to welcome Jennifer Fondrave to the show. Jennifer is the founder of Day One Ready, an M&A deal consultancy that advises forward-thinking business leaders, owners, and C-suite executives On how to prepare for the human capital challenges of mergers and acquisitions. The survivor of three multi billion dollar acquisitions, Jennifer saw countless growth strategies fail due to a workforce that couldn't pivot and adapt because they were not able to adapt as quickly as leadership anticipated. When her Harvard Business Review article, After a Merger, Don't Let Us Versus Them Thinking Ruin the Company, went viral, Jennifer recognized the power and interest in a human-centric approach to business transformation, where employees are at the heart of the change and not on the sidelines. Jennifer shares her expertise as a contributor to Forbes, Harvard Business Review, Medium, Middle Market Growth, American Marketing Association, and Thrive, and as a keynote speaker, most recently for Express Scripts Leadership who were acquired by Cigna for $64 billion in 2018. Her book, Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Acquisition, is scheduled to be published in October of 2019 and guides executives and middle managers through the transitions brought by M&A to find the opportunities in change and disruption. It is my pleasure to welcome Jennifer to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Jennifer, it's really interesting that your background is in advertising and as a corporate marketing executive for several Fortune 500 companies. Yet your new focus is on mergers and acquisitions. Can you tell us a bit about your transition and what led you to pursue this new path?
1: For sure. You know, what's interesting, Tina, is that in my first 15 years of advertising, I saw so many of my clients go through all Manner of mergers and acquisitions, right? I worked with Nestle and Kraft and Coors and Cadbury and Unilever, and all of them faced MA. But at the time, it was a, a, a normal part of business. Mm-hmm. What I witnessed was the result of all that disruption and change, right? Marketing campaigns that were suspended or halted, or product launches that people had worked months or years to bring to the market that were killed. And I, I'm not trying to pass judgment, but I saw really good people lose faith in their abilities as they watched things that they had worked on get killed with little explanation or strategic sense. But I say that, again, without having any, any really thought about where I would be in the future. It was more I just witnessed the impact of m and
0: hmm
1: And then I transitioned into a marketing career after 15 years in advertising. And in the 10 years of my marketing career, I experienced three multi-billion dollar acquisitions. And after the first one, I thought, dear God, there has just got to be a better way. (laughs) And I should say, right, I was part of three multi-billion. And the bigger the billions, the bigger the bloodbath. So I should be upfront. It's, It's not always the case for everyone, but I just felt consistently there at got to be a better way. So I started to, at the beginning, just the thought had been, I was just going to write a survivor's handbook, mm-hmm. so how to survive MNA. I thought if people had more visibility and transparency on what to expect, they'd have a better chance
0: of succeeding. And how long ago were you thinking that you were going to write this sort of survivor's handbook?
1: That was the fall of 2016. Okay. And I didn't want it to just be my story or perspective, and I wanted to confirm my hunches, right? The challenges that I faced, was it unique to me or was it global? And so I interviewed about 60 executives. And over the course of those interviews, it became clear to me that there were consistent themes and that I wasn't the exception. But what also became clear, and this is what I always think is kind of funny, as I was interviewing CEOs and CFOs and private equity dealmakers, they would consistently say, this is a really good idea, right? Helping people who are in the middle of a merger and acquisition better understand how to, how to seize the opportunities. You should, you should do more than this. What are you doing besides the book? They would consistently ask. And I always say, do you know how hard it is to write a book? Like I, all, <laughs> all I was focused on was the book. And I'm embarrassed to say that because as a marketing executive, I know, right? I, you know, one guy said, "What are you going to do? Go out, wear sandwich boards, and you know, promote your book? Like, how is this going to get into people's <laughs> hands?" And so that leads me to where I am now. I launched my consultancy in January of 2018, and it's been it's been an amazing journey. I would have to say, once I went all in and and walked away from a very nice marketing career. I I made a very decent buck as a marketing executive, but it really felt to me that it was my mission and I'm very thankful to have had this opportunity and a great partner in my husband to be able to to pursue this because I see my message resonating.
0: Well, and you know it's interesting because you and I met a number of months ago and we were exchanging stories and what you said to me really resonates, and, and we're, we're, we're very tight and aligned in many ways, because um, you know, in my career as a branding lawyer, worked with many professionals such as you on various campaigns, and also just having been doing this for a while, watching sort of the evolution and life cycle of a number of clients that I've worked with over the years. Um, disappearing or becoming, you know, much more massive as a result of the various types of transactions that you're, that you're talking about. And, you know, you mentioned in your bio, and we've talked about this, that you've been on all sides of the equation, both, you know, the acquired as well as the acquirer. What is the difference that you've seen in those two experiences based on your professional experiences?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because there's more commonalities between the two experiences than people might think. There's an assumption that being on the acquired side is somehow easier. You've got the power or the control. But the the reality is that the majority of the workforce, even in the acquiring company, doesn't necessarily have visibility into what the agenda is, what the objectives were. It's a, it's, Typically, uniquely held at the top of the company and the acquiring company, and so it's really the workforce on both sides that's trying to figure out. Okay, this is the reason why we did this acquisition, and here's how we're going to make it work. And so I think it's misrepresentation, if you will, because the the acquiring company, the people there can equally suffer and be trying to figure out what to do. And then when you are an acquisition, what I found is interesting is oftentimes you have more leverage than you realize because you were a target. You were an acquisition target because you've got a product, a service, or a solution that the acquiring company didn't feel that they could get to on their own. Right. There's a lot of of insight. And I will I will absolutely highlight that my understanding was refined after doing those 60 interviews. I really got a better sense of of the drivers of M&A and, and both sides uh, of the equation. And, and frankly, because of my experience, what was most fascinating to me, my first acquisition experience was we were acquired. Nokia acquired the company that I worked for, Navtech, mm-hmm. back in 2008. And in the second acquisition experience, the team that I inherited had been acquired about 18 months prior. And I recognized quickly that I was a much better leader of that team because I knew how they felt. I knew Mm -hmm. what they were going through, and I knew the questions that they weren't asking me. And frankly, it was really after that second acquisition experience that prompted me to start writing the outline for my book because I thought I could see that I was a better leader only because I knew what they were going through. And I saw other teams suffer because their leaders couldn't handle the emotions that were coming forward because of you know, the challenges that come with integration. And so it was in that moment that I thought if I could help leaders be smarter about how to lead and be able to have greater visibility on the emotions that emerge, the personalities, all of that, that's really the benefit of having
0: been on both sides for me. So you mentioned those two transactions. Was there another one that followed that?
1: Yes. So in the third, uh, third acquisition experience, it was a private equity firm that acquired the company that I had joined. And at that point, by, when you go through your third acquisition experience, I knew the playbook. Right. Uh, people were actually kind of fascinated by how calm I was. I said, oh, I've, I've been in this rodeo. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know what to expect. And I had been hired specifically to lead the marketing for a B2B startup within the company and loved it. Great, great opportunity. But as soon as I was brought into the inner circle and told that we were being acquired by a private equity firm, I knew, and this has nothing to do with whether it was private equity or not. I just knew right. that because we were a startup within this company, that we wouldn't be given the runway that typically you need for a B2B right. sp- to do well. So that visibility was enormously helpful. And and frankly, that was kind of the the nail in the coffin. I thought, I'm gonna keep moving around as a marketing executive and I'm just gonna keep getting acquired. So I should just stop, write this book. And that's really it was at that moment that I I uh I said to myself, just write the damn book.
0: Well, you know, and I'm sure that we'll have, you know, future conversations because I find what you do in your experience and, and where you're headed fascinating. But I have a lot of experience also working with companies that are acquired by private equity. And, you know, that's a playbook within a playbook, right? I mean, because just what 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 PE firms are focused on is, is very different in terms of what their expectations are of their portfolio companies, how they manage them, lead them you know, like the type of relationships they have with outside counsel and so forth. And I find it fascinating. I mean, my firm, my old firm did a lot of work in the PE space and I, I find it fascinating.
1: And and I want to be upfront because it, the, there can be a, a misinterpretation. I know that mergers and acqu- the goal of mergers and acquisitions is for growth. It's a business play. And it is an amazing opportunity for a company to, to grow, right? To do better. So I, I never want people to think, oh, I, I don't like m and I don't understand why they happen. I absolutely do. And I think private equity actually has an enormous opportunity to make businesses more efficient. My focus is on really helping M&A be more successful because the part that gets typically forgotten and I get it, right? The whole focus of the deal at the beginning is just get the deal done, right? So if you put the people component to the side and just think I'll get to that when I get to it. You you've potentially undermined the success of the deal before we've even signed the papers.
0: Yeah, and you know you had mentioned to me a statistic that I find stunning, sort of along the lines of what are what is the success or failure rate of uh, of a deal. You mentioned that 70 to 90 percent of mergers and acquisitions fail. And clearly, your opportunity is to share your wisdom on what is called often the unanticipated people problems that tend to undermine the success of a particular merger or acquisition. First, I would like to just ask you so that our listeners are sort of aware of of the vernacular we're using. When you say that 70 to 90% of mergers and acquisitions fail, how do you define failure in that context? And then can you share some perspective on what some of the unanticipated people problems tend to be?
1: So the 70, 90% failure rate, and that's from Harvard Business Review McKinsey studies, and that's been a fairly consistent statistic for over five years. And how they define that is, is not achieving the projected valuation by year one. I suspect that over time they, because it's almost near impossible, particularly with, with big multi-billion dollar acquisitions to have success in year one, you're still just figuring out how to make things work. but in the frenzy of the deal and getting things done, there are a lot of projections made for where they're going to be by year one. And so that 70 to 90% essentially says, 70 90% don't hit that by year one. And the reasons that are consistently highlighted, and this, this I can say not only through my research, but research done by others, there's typically four areas that they distill down to that are the drivers for the failure, right? One is poor integration. We've talked a little bit about that higher than anticipated complexity, difficult cultural fit, which is separate from integration. There's a a combination. Integration can be operation systems. Culture is just people, right? Right. Integrate the people. And then synergies that didn't materialize, right? Oftentimes what I say is what looks good on paper doesn't necessarily play out in reality. And there are a lot of expectations when working on the deal Particularly because the deal, you can only inform so many people. And so I often say, you know, in the, in the, the deal development, you've got all the generals in the room, but you may not have the, the next line down the front line, the guys in the foxhole, if you will, who can right. give back to you. Yep, here's where the strategy makes sense. Here's where it doesn't. And so there's a lot of expected synergies that don't necessarily play out. But a common thread through all of those is the people component and so when i was when I was doing interviews, and again, through research that others have done, oftentimes it's just they were not expecting some of the people challenges that they faced, and that's whether it's communications, it's the culture, it's the aspects of integration,
0: all of that played a role so given that you're you know and, and that makes sense that when you're were, we're talking failure, it's not like outright failure of. The business, it's a failure to meet the expectations within a, a relatively short timeframe of when the deal's done. So given this pretty high failure rate, and as you mentioned, it's a statistic that's pretty well proven, and it's been one that's really pretty much been where it's been at for the past few years, why do companies continue to aggressively pursue MA as a growth strategy against that backdrop?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, and and uh, I said before, right, going into a deal, no one expects it to fail. I think there's a lot of confidence, some would say ego, going into a deal that that deal won't be part of the 70, 90 percent failure rate. So I think that's a a, a big aspect. Of it. People go in thinking this is going to be successful. We're we're smart and we're going to make this work. And the reality is, and you and I, Tina, we've talked about this, right? The companies today. To become profitable, it's either through improved margins, operations, or increased growth. Right, And that growth is either going to come organically or it's going to come through an acquisition. And more companies are struggling to survive on their own and they don't have the resources, the capital for organic growth. So acquisition becomes a more viable play to, to survive, much less grow. And so I see that M&A will continue because companies are struggling to survive on their own. And so, frankly, again, that's, that's what drives so much of what I do is to help M&A be more successful, to recognize that these are the challenges that are faced, to lower that 70 to 90% failure rate. And I should say, it's the 70 to 90% failure rate really focuses on those big, big deals, right? There are right. a lot of uh, private equity firms out there who are doing a fabulous job of creating portfolios and are really helping optimize, bring companies together to create a portfolio of companies that work well together. So I, I would I wouldn't want the 70, 90% failure rate for people to think, wow, isn't anyone doing well? If if people weren't doing well, private equity wouldn't be in this business. Right. But for me, what I can focus on is the people part, the people challenges and helping companies be smarter within that to to do my part to to increase the, the success rate.
0: So within that context of trying to help companies with the people part, in your recent Harvard Business Review article, you wrote about something that I think we can all identify with, which is the us versus them dynamic that's created in an organization, particularly once there's some sort of an acquisition or, or disposition. Can you describe what that looks like, that us versus them dynamic and what the consequences are?
1: Sure. And it was, it was fascinating for me. When I was interviewing uh, executives for the book, three themes uh, emerged. One, and let me qualify this, us versus them dynamic, everyone anticipates that there's going to be a bit of us versus them dynamic between the two companies, our company versus their company. You're kind of eyeballing each other. Maybe you knew each other before. Ideally you did, but oftentimes it can be the case where you don't know the other company or the other company was a competitor, right? So there's always that bit of us versus them that way. But what I found in my research is there are two other ways that it manifests. One is executives versus frontline leaders. You could have a very cordial, uh, amazing company, but you become acquired, and suddenly your frontline leaders are looking at the executives thinking, wait a minute, I I see you doing well in this, but now I've got twice as much work. So there, there literally becomes an us versus them dynamic within the workforce. And then the third dynamic that I saw, and it consistently came up in the interviews, is the who stays versus who goes because, and it's a big part of my book, it's musical chairs. It mm-hmm. is, you may or may not end up with a seat when the music stops. And so you have people who leave and people who stay, but both sides think the other person got off better. And that I found fascinating, right? The people who leave wish they still had a job there and can be resentful. But the people who stay now potentially have twice as much work and feel trapped. And, and the reality, too, is you, the company tends to spend more money on outplacement than they do on in-placement, right? Helping those people who are still at the company navigate and understand what's happening. And so really, those three dynamics can, can undermine the deal instantly. And that's what I talk about
0: in the article and uh, as well in the book. So let's talk a little bit about the book that we've been talking about, which you're going to be launching in the next few weeks. It's called Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Acquisition. I just love the fact that it targets middle managers and gives them a template on how to survive. I don't think I've read a book in the past that specifically targets that particular group. What drove your decision to target middle managers?
1: Well, one I, I'd have to say, particularly in my first acquisition experience, even though I was a VP, you're you're in the middle of it all, right? You're not in the room when, this, when the deal is made, but you're burdened with the execution, and and that's who I wrote the book for, right? The the people who who have the responsibility to make it successful, yet they weren't part of defining the strategy, and so there's so much catching up to do, so much of the well. If you'd asked my opinion, I would have told you this would be impossible or we need more resources here or more budget there. And so I felt that if I wrote a book, a survivor's handbook on here's how to be smart about whether your company is an M&A target or what are the implications, what are going to be the drivers for M&A that you need to be smart on so you can anticipate whether it's going to happen at your company or not. And then if you're in the middle of it, here's what you need to do to be smart about your career. How to find the opportunities within the, the changing dynamics in that post integration time period, and then how to thrive through it. So, I felt that the middle manager typically was the one forgotten in all of the deal dynamics and the deal making and the, the rush to get the deal done. And so, that's who I wrote the book for because that's the book I wanted when I was going through my three different acquisition experiences. I wanted a book that said, how do you make this work? And I also felt too, and it's just the nature of M&A. There's so much confidentiality and and legal requirements. So oftentimes your leaders can't answer questions. There's certain ones that they can, but certainly there are a number that they can't. And so I thought if there was a book that gave visibility on, here's what's happening. This is why it's happening. Here's how you can get information and be smart about it, that that would be a great gift to middle managers. But what I've seen that's interesting, and I, and this has come through a lot in the speaking engagements I've done, is executives equally find the book, because I've obviously been talking a lot about the aspects of the book in, in advance of it coming out. Mm-hmm. Executives have found it helpful because it gives them insight into what to expect, right? I often say, they're not unanticipated people challenges. You can expect these people challenges. Here's how to be smart. Here's how to prepare your organization. Here's how to communicate around this deal so that people feel invested in the vision and not lost. And so executives have equally benefited from the the message and the approach that I have that comes forward in the book because it gives them insight into what to expect.
0: Well, and a lot of it is just trying to understand what, you know, who the players are and what their different frames of reference are, correct? I mean, that's a big part of trying to Get folks aligned, especially after such a significant inflection point in the life cycle of a company.
1: Right, absolutely. And credit for this goes to one of my um, interview subjects. He said, You know, you're trying to replace FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt with Poe, perspective, opportunity, and hope. (laughs) (laughs) I I like it. (laughs) And uh, and he and I both jokingly said, Because, you know, we said, Well, hope is not a strategy. And I and I said absolutely, and that's why I looked at my book as almost a field guide, if you will, how to how to make this work for you. And so far, the the reaction's been positive, and and I'm thrilled that it's coming out in October because I'd I'd have to say I feel like I've been pregnant with this book for many years, <laughs> and so to finally be able to put it out in the world is a great feeling.
0: Well, and we're very excited for you, and. I have one other question, and then we're going to wind down our first part of our time together. So a part of the book synopsis that you had shared with me is intended to help people get from denial to acceptance, post-deal integration. Can you talk a little bit about why you approached it that way and what that looks like?
1: Yeah, that definitely comes from my My experience, and it was reinforced in in the interviews. When I went through my first acquisition experience, I was so excited. I thought it was a brilliant move on Nokia's part. I felt that Navtech as a digital map maker was a smart play for Nokia. I I won't get into the details of why the acquisition didn't play out successfully, but what I can say is I, I felt depressed when I started to see the years of work just started to unravel and I could see teams splitting apart. And so for me, I couldn't understand why I felt so depressed. And, and a friend of mine, whose mom was a a grief counselor described that, you know, grief is the way they described grief is it's really a mourning of the future that won't be. And I thought that's exactly how this felt. And once I started to realize that you go through a grieving process, right you're losing the company you love, or at least that's how it feels mm-hmm. and so I wanted people to understand that you've got to get from denial to acceptance, and so the book walks through the the different stages you know you go through denial and then there's anger and then there's bargaining, and then there's depression, and then you get to acceptance and so I talk about my journey and, and also lessons learned from the interviews that I did to help people first feel like they're not going crazy, but then also to help them understand that it's not a linear path. You can you can jump back and forth. It's not like you're going to walk from denial to acceptance and here's how many months it takes. It, it can be a while and to not beat yourself up, but to drive home the point that you've got to get to acceptance. And the point that I underline is acceptance doesn't mean you have to accept what has happened. It's just that you have to accept that it has happened. There can be aspects of it that you're frustrated with that you don't like. But my my message is you can be a part of improving that and changing that. And the faster you get to acceptance, the greater role you can play in in fixing it and making it better. And that's really what the focus is of that aspect. And What's interesting is I um, I did a Spotify list called "From Denial to Acceptance" because I thought this is a lot like a breakup. A really it is, like,
0: yeah, a really bad
1: breakup. And I thought, well, what do you try and do, what do you do when you're going through a, a bad breakup? So the majority of people will play their you know music <laughs> really loudly, right? So I've got I think I've got Def Leppard and Led Zeppelin, <laughs> um, Bon Jovi. You know, it's it's and I've got. Songs for each stage, and the reaction to that Spotify list, and it was funny because people gave me other songs that I should add to it. ABBA's "Money, Money, Money," you know, <laughs> That's
0: so funny.
1: So, but again, you know, and it's a big point of the the book is to, and it's a satirical book. It's illustrated. I've got aspects of it because I thought, who in their right mind would read a book about MA, particularly when you're in the middle of it? So I try and demystify some of the aspects and. And and there's a lot of dark humor. So for me, bringing humanity to m having people understand, here's what you're going through and why, I, I thought that was probably the, the greatest guiding light that my book could have.
0: Well, and we're going to, in our next segment together, we're going to get into a little bit more detail about how much fun your book really is. Um, I can't wait to get into what some of the characters look like. And I'm really looking forward to the second part of our conversation. Before we sign off on this segment, do you have any final thoughts? And where can our listeners find you?
1: Well, I'll start with where, uh, where listeners can find me. So jenniferjfondreve.com is my website. And there you'll, you'll see the, the consulting work I do. My consultancy, as you said before, is day one ready it focuses on the human capital aspect of, of M&A. And then also you can pre-order the book. There's a, a section there for you to sign up. And I'm thrilled at how many people I've seen um, signing up for pre-orders of the book. People who either have friends or family who've gone through it or people who I sense. My suspicion is when when I've had a number of people signing up that they anticipate that their company is going through it or they're right in the middle of it. So I'm thrilled to be on your show to to highlight that as an opportunity. So again, it's jenniferjfondreve.com.
0: Awesome. And are you on social media?
1: I am really most active on LinkedIn. You will see uh, a number of articles around mergers and acquisitions. Again, I always look at it from the, the human perspective. So I've got the secret language of M&A, my Spotify list with how to communicate around mergers and acquisitions, how to paint a picture that galvanizes your workforce. I've got a number of articles there that people can reference in advance of the book.
0: Jennifer, it's been wonderful having this chat with you and I look forward to continuing our conversation.
1: Thank you, me as well.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed part one of our conversation with Jennifer Fondreve and that you will join us next week for part two of our conversation. I am your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.